4: From KQBD in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Literary translators are why we are exposed to novels, poems, essays written in languages we don't speak, why we have access to new ideas and worlds. Translators strive to convey meaning, humor, emotion in every sentence, but their work often goes unrecognized and underpaid. This hour, we sit down with translators working to bring more visibility to the field and learn why literary translation should be treated as an art in its own right. Tell us, have you ever attempted to translate text? What did you notice? Forum is next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Their names often don't appear on book covers, but translators who bring to life literary works from one language to another are also bringing their knowledge and experiences. They're interpreting and creating. They're practicing both craft and art. Yet. Within publishing, they're frequently underrecognized and underpaid, denied royalties for their work, or even job opportunities if they're heritage language speakers or from the countries of the literature they're translating. This hour, we learn more about changes to the industry that some translators are pushing for, and the amount of work that truly goes into literary translation. And joining me is Soje, who translates from Korean, a poet, a creator of a zine which presents multiple translations of the same poem in each issue. So, Jay, so glad to have you on with us.
3: Hi, thank you for having me.
4: Also, Jennifer Croft is with us, who translates from Polish, Argentine, Spanish, and Ukrainian, author of the forthcoming novel, The Extinction of Irina Irina Ray. Jennifer, thank you so much for being with us as well.
5: Thank you so much for having
4: us. Also, Bruna dantas Lobato is with us, who translates from Portuguese and advocates for translators not working in their first language. Bruna, so glad to have you on as well. Thank you so much for having me. So a common misconception, and maybe even the rise of translation software and apps, I think contributes to this. But it's that literary translation is essentially word-for-word translation, with a few fixes maybe for grammar or meaning. And I'm wondering, Jennifer, how far off that idea is from what you actually do.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think everyone feels so differently about their process, as is the case for writers, if you're talking to people about how they write a novel. But for me, I want to kind of submerge myself in a text and then, and really understand how it would make the original language reader feel. And then I wanna create something similar when I come back to the surface and I'm in English again. Um, And that means restructuring some things. It means a lot of thinking about where to locate conversations, for example. Um, you know, one phrase can be said in a thousand different ways, especially in English, which has so many synonyms. So it's really uh, definitely a creative act.
4: Uh, so how about you? How would you describe the role of a literary translator and what you specifically bring to your role?
3: Yeah, um, the metaphor thought comes to mind immediately is just a wearer of many hats, right? I'm (laughs) functioning as translate, not only translator, but also sort of an agent in many cases, um, as well as editor, live interpreter at events, um, counselor, you know, many different things. And I personally uh, love to translate poetry. And I think the most uh, immediate sort of rebuttal that I have is have you ever tried translating a joke you know from one language to another or mm. even from one demographic for one demographic to another you know you can't do it word for word and um in poetry I try to deliver the meaning of and meaning and sense of the and music of the poem as forcefully as I would a joke
4: Yeah. And also, when you're saying that, it reminds me also just how hard it is to translate humor. And that's, you know, such a difficult, thorny thing to do. But yet, translators do that. And it takes such a deep knowledge of both cultures and languages to do that effectively. Uh, Bruna, you've said that people often think about translators as always second fiddle to the author. Why shouldn't they? What do you do that you feel like warrants definitely not that interpretation?
6: <laughs> yeah, I find that there are so many metaphors for translation. And maybe the more useful ones in this case would be like a pianist interpreting a score or an actor interpreting a monologue. It is somebody else's text, but the artist is making all their own. Um And in many ways, this is how I see it. There is no way for me to be writing that text without including my own sensibility into it or my own reading and perspective of that text into it. So in my marginalia, I always add, this was moving to me or this was funny. And that's what I tried to carry through in the translation. Somebody else might have different reactions, different emotional relationships to the text, and they would be just as meaningful.
4: Hmm. So Jay, is it similar for you, In terms of, do you try to sort of quiet your experiences or interpretations of things, the things that inform the way that you will interpret something and try to inhabit the mind of the author? Or do you try to bring those things forward because you feel like that's what's needed to create a more authentic or accurate translation?
3: Hmm. Thank you for this question. Um. For me personally, this is my sixth year of being a literary translator. And I think my position on this has changed over time naturally yeah. as I become more confident in my craft definitely when I first started I was literally an undergrad student you know I was 22 yeah I was 22 you know barely a writer in my own right so of course I wanted to really be quote-unquote faithful or loyal or serviceable to the text but I over time I realized oh I could never be a neutral you know, um, medium. Uh, I'm I'm a person <laughs> with my own subjectivity. And I think as I've become more confident as a translator, I'm also more um, cognizant of my own strengths and weaknesses. And I try to, of course, uh, amplify my strengths and, you know, <laughs> try to um, work on my weaknesses as a translator.
4: Could I ask you actually about some of the specifics uh, about the Korean language that can make it difficult to translate into English? And, and the reason I ask is because I was so fascinated by your description of honorifics in Korean <laughs> and how that translates into English.
3: Right. Uh, I, to be honest, I can't remember exactly what I said in the pre-interview weeks ago, but uh, I think honorifics is. Really, really important concept in Korean literature because uh, there is such a sort of divide between the spoken language and the written language, more so than in English, more so than in specifically American poetry, which, you know, is sort of um, leaning towards the vernacular. And so in Korean poetry, if someone uses a higher register, that is extremely um, or it uses a lower register that is extremely intentional and whether that's meant to signal a sort of intimacy between the speaker and the reader, mm. um, addressee, or it could be a sign of disrespect, right? If
4: someone is writing a
3: very angry poem, um, you know, they might write it in a more casual um, tone. Yes.
4: And so sometimes you even added words to show a more formal tone, like... Um hello for example as opposed to hey or hi right
3: (laughs) oh right yes thank you for the reminder yes that's from a poem called la 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 cherries by ihemi um from the collection unexpected vanilla and as you can maybe gather from the title of the collection it is a collection of very sexy romantic poetry and in Hemi's case, when she writes in the sort of formal register, it's actually a kind of flirtatious thing. And I I know how convoluted this all seems about the Korean honorifics and registers, but you know, when you first meet someone, you're a little more careful with them. So I put in the hello at the beginning of that line to sort of, you know, show that, oh, this person, these two people haven't really interacted yet. And, yeah. you know, we're, to see them flirt. <laughs>
4: Fascinating. <laughs> Bruno, what about for you? What are some specific challenges that come with translating from Portuguese to English, particularly in terms of language construction?
6: Um, there are so many different kinds of Portuguese that I'm often dealing with. So more recently, I translated this book called The Words That Remain by Steinho Gartel. And in that book, he uses a regional dialect that's from the northeast of Brazil, where I also grew up. And, um, and it, it maybe would be easy to translate the more rural way of speaking into some kind of folksy, you know, funny dialect. But I was very careful to see the regional constructions as witty when I felt that they were witty, as sad when I felt that they were sad, instead of marking the just the regionalism on the surface, trying to get to what was underneath you know, and trying to make the text not foreign, but what it really was, seeing beyond the labels maybe that the text carries. So that that is a challenge. There are so many distinctions that you can see, class distinctions, racial distinctions in the Portuguese of Brazil, but also of the other many former colonies of Portugal. I've worked with Angolan books as well. And, you know, there, there are so many things there. I yeah. try to hint those in very nuanced ways versus very overt ways, um, and to see what the language is really doing instead of getting caught up, maybe, you know, in the more apparent results. But i, I much like like Soj, you kind of just have to know if is does that come across as disrespectful or is it flirtatious or is it informal. Yes. In many ways, there is a similar you know, uh, juggling there that has to go on with the tone.
4: Uh, uh, Jenny, what are you working on now, and is it posing any unique challenges for you?
5: There are always unique challenges. Right now, I'm, I'm translating a very non-narrative novel by the Argentine writer Federico Falco um, called The Plains. So, you know, his project is to try to understand if you can write without narrative, like if if something without story is possible as a book. And that's such an interesting, I was very daunted. I've been friends with Freda for a long time and I um, translated his last book, which was a collection of short stories called A Perfect Cemetery. And I think that was my favorite translation that I've done so far. Nonetheless, I was daunted by the prospect of doing this non-narrative, but Um, It's been fascinating, and it's a really gorgeous kind of interweaving of nature writing and reflection as this uh, narrator kind of sits in grief rather than, like, overcoming grief. Just sort of, like, sits in it, and it crashes over him, um, you know, at various times, like waves. So, yeah, it's just been – it's also – been challenging because of like various things happening in my life and it's all about the meaning of time kind of what time does to a person and what time doesn't do to a person
4: Hmm. and so it's like very reflective of what you're balancing as well it sounds like (laughs) jenny croft is a translator translates from polish argentine spanish and ukrainian so Jay translates from korean also a poet jenny is also a novelist bruna is a novelist who translates from portuguese Uh, and advocates for translators as well. Bruna Dantas-Lobato, Jennifer Croft, and Sojay join us for more after the break, and so
0: will you, listeners. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
4: You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with a panel of literary translators this hour about the joys and challenges of their work. Sojay is a poet who translates from Korean. Jennifer Croft is a novelist, writer who translates from Polish, Argentine, Spanish, and Ukrainian. Bruna Dante Lobato is also a novelist who translates from Brazilian Portuguese mainly, but other languages as well. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What questions do you have about the art of translation or the role of a literary translator? Have you ever attempted to translate text? What was your experience or what things came up for you that you'd like to ask our panel about? Maybe you have a favorite translated work. You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social channels at forum. Or you can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, that number, 866-733-6786. And uh, the sister, Scott, writes, as a government translator, I can tell you that relatively accurate translations of documents are possible, maybe a bit more lengthy, but possible. But translating written art, poems, books, even jokes are a different thing entirely. It's like eating a fantastic meal and trying to convey over the phone how wonderful it tastes. You lose so much in translating. Well, my guests are making sure you don't lose too much. And Jennifer, I was struck by something that you said just before the break, which is that you're friends with the person that you are translating. Federico Falco, how much of your translation or how often do you involve the author or engage with the author when you're translating?
5: That's a such a great question and also very you know particular to each person. I do want to say that I don't think Literary translation is anything like having a great meal and <laughs> someone about it. I think it's so much more like, you know, like making a film, we expect there to be collaboration, you would be probably horrified if you found out that a feature-length film was made entirely by one person it probably just wouldn't be very good Um, so you expect there to be like a whole crew a whole cast and in that realm we really appreciate there being these multiple actors to create the best possible experience for us but for some reason we're still clinging to this idea of the individual genius in literature Mm -hmm. yeah and my friends are individual geniuses in their own way but um, they are also you know humans with whom I love to collaborate and um, it really depends you know like I said on the translator but also I speak with Fede the person I'm working on right now quite often I make him send me pictures Um, we have a lot of back and forth some of it gets very emotional Um, and then other writers I might not ask any questions as I'm working on them Partly because of the nature of the text, partly, you know, in the case of Olga Tokarczuk, for example, the Polish Nobel laureate, she has a whole network of translators. And oftentimes if there's something really confusing in a book, she might have forgotten it by that point. She tends to finish a project and just completely move on. Um, But her other translators have been paying attention to that and they might have great suggestions for how to tackle it. So it really just depends on the situation.
4: Well, the sister writes, I write children's picture books, and many have been translated into other languages. I'm always fascinated by how the titles differ. For example, a book called Outside In in English has been published under the titles When Outside Calls You, The World Is Inside. And a forest in me and <laughs> other countries. Some of my books are in rhyme. I agonize over the word choice and meter when I'm writing them. I've always wondered what the translation process is like for those and admire the translators who have to cope with that additional obstacle. Ooh, so Jay, I would love to get your reaction to what the sister just wrote on so many levels. One, you're a poet. Also, you have an interesting story about changing a title <laughs> and also working directly with an author through that process, so could you share a little bit about, um, you know, what this listener uh, is re- is referencing in terms of the fascination of how uh, titles change, how poetry is translated, and and also if you have experience with interacting with authors as well as a translator.
3: All right, I, I'm full of author funny author stories, um, but the one that actually the I'm thinking of a friend of ours, uh, Jeremy Tiang, who always loves to tweet out different um, movie title translations across the Chinese diaspora. So when American movies um, go to China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, etc., apparently it's (laughs) translated into vastly different titles, even though they may be written in the same script. And I think that really speaks to um, the function of titles and marketability, right? Uh, a kind of immediate sort of reaction. We need that kind of commercial viability, especially in movies, less so in poetry. Um, but I think uh, if you're interested in how uh, different regions prefer different sort of storytelling around this particular title, I think you should definitely check out um, our friend Jeremy Ken's Twitter or X account, I guess. Um, Yeah, and my personal story is about the word or the verb which means to both um, write and ride in Korean. And in this poem, um, I translate it as every man who has written and ridden me uh, because it's about um, the poet's formation as a writer through these very uh, destructive romantic relationships she's been in. So she, uh, the poet Isohu, wanted, I I, th- I actually can't even remember which, uh, which version of the title she preferred. I gave her, I think, like four different options because it heavily relies on this um, wordplay. And i it really depends on which aspect of the poem you really want to highlight. And I thought about it. I really sat with her decision and we had a conversation around it. But ultimately, I thought the rhyme of written and written uh, was very crucial. And so, yeah, that is the final title.
4: You know, Bruna, I'm struck by the fact that I think you were one of the few who said that you really don't speak to an author until you have a solid vision for what they have written. Is that still the case? Is that more frequently the case for you that you you sort of don't talk to them during the translation process?
6: Yes, that is true. I really uh, empathize with what you said about agonizing about the writing. Uh, just trust that the translator agonized too. Uh, and one of the reasons why I don't speak with the author is because I want to come up with some possibilities for what the text might mean to me or some poetic opportunities I see in English that might not be there in Portuguese before I just get an easy answer that might not be the best answer, but it would be the quote unquote correct one, you know, for a Portuguese speaker. And then I get stuck with it. So one thing that comes to mind is that uh, English, for example, doesn't have Much tolerance for vague language, same thing or stuff, whereas in Portuguese that is very common, it even sounds pretty. So there is a line in the book that um, it's about homophobia and this character is experiencing a lot of it in his town. And he says that being a gay man shouldn't be a death thing, it should be a life thing. Yeah, and then I toyed with it a lot. It's like life giving should be. And then I came up with it shouldn't be a death sentence. It should be a life sentence. And now this is a book that is a lot about language and about judgment. So sentence had both of those meanings there uh, and I was satisfied with it. And then when I presented my vision, the many webs of, you know, uh, resonance and meanings that I could come up with. Um, to the author, he was really excited. He was like, I had never thought about the life sentence death sentence thing. It is not an opportunity that would be there in Portuguese. Life sentence and death sentence are not used in this way at all outside of like the penal system. you know, So it is an opportunity that only existed in English. And the way I see it as a novelist, I do this too, that when I am when I want to write forward, I look backward. I'm like, what kind of language have I already? used. And if I say I've used a lot of language around um, doom or um, judgment, like I had in this book, it felt like I could include a phrase that came out of that, that came out of the language of the book itself. So I look for answers in my language, which is the medium that I'm working with, but also towards, you know, I look towards the book itself. I'm more interested in looking at the book than at looking at the author. Mm-hmm. I find mm-hmm. it much like Olga forgot, you know, what she was doing. As a writer, my book is much better than I could ever be because it's a layers and layers of combinations of all my best selves throughout the years, hmm. whereas my one cell phone Zoom might be perfectly flawed, you know. <laughs> so I try to stick to the book first, and then I consult with the author.
4: Yeah. Wendy on Discord writes, I love both of Haruki Murakami's translators. They are excellent novelists as well. As I listen to all three of you describing how much you wrestle with ag- agonize over, think really deeply about... The works that you are translating, your point earlier, Jenny, about we would be sort of horrified to only see one name on a film, like the originator of the film, and not give credit to all the people who actually worked on it. Yet we kind of do that, we do do that with literary works. You wrote, I think, on Twitter in 2021, I'm not translating any more books without my name on the cover. Not only is it disrespectful to me, but it's also a disservice... To the reader. Can you talk a little bit about the lack of recognition that's fairly typical in the industry, Jenny, and why you took this stand?
5: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the translator's name being on the cover is sort of the gateway to so many elements of making translation uh, a viable career for all kinds of different people. Um, I think, you know, one thing that I wanted to get at with that. I mean, I didn't, to be honest with you, I didn't put a lot into that tweet. It was just a frustrating night. And I tweeted, but um, the, in terms of doing a disservice to the reader, that, that really has to do with um, this impulse that has been prevalent in the publishing industry to kind of conceal foreignness, to pretend that everything in the world is in fact um, in the United States. So if you give people the illusion that Murakami is writing in English, um, that obviously is such a distorted view of what you're going to be getting in the book and how you should be interpreting what you're reading. Um, And it allows readers to really project so much of their own culture onto places where it doesn't need to be and shouldn't be. Mm. And, um, you know, when I think also of a writer like Olga, who's so, proud to be polish for all the complexity political complexities of that identity um she too it's a disservice to the author because she would be horrified to think that people believe that she writes in english that's not her choice that's not something that she's interested in ever doing um so just By putting the name there, you let people know the truth. Um, You endorse this idea that translation doesn't have to be a betrayal. It could be a a collaboration. Um, And you allow the reader, sorry, the writer to kind of continue to exist in her own um, cultural sphere.
4: Yeah. Well, Bruno, you've also said that putting the name on the book is also a way to hold translators accountable for the work they do. What do you mean by that?
6: Yes, uh, there is a way that by tricking the reader into thinking this is what it is, you know, um, they might not recognize that there is so much work that we're doing, work that might be biased, work that might be dishonest. Um, If our name is on the cover, we can be treated like the professionals. We are both on the positive side and on the negative side. We can be properly critiqued, properly analyzed. Properly compensated. It all comes, I think, together in that sense. I would love for translators to be seen as both artists and scholars because, like Sojay said, we wear all these hats, you know, and it is very difficult, I think, uh, to for- see a book, for example, about race or a book about being a refugee and not. Not try to understand who exactly meddled with that text, who had fun with this text, who you know is uh, participating and collaborating and all of that, because sometimes our identities can hold meaning or tension. It just seems to me that uh, publishers and people I like strive for this neutrality in publishing that isn't possible. We're very much people who are engaged with the world. I would like to see more transparency around that.
4: Mm. Uh, Jenny, you've also raised the issue of translators being underpaid, and I'm wondering how much are they typically paid? Is there a typical with an industry like this?
5: So this is a very frustrating thing that I hope to work on more, but Um, there is kind of a standard, a minimum standard rate in the UK. There is not anything like that. There's no industry-wide standard for how much a literary translator should be paid, just as the fee that they get, which is kind of like an advance. Um, So I would recommend, I'm just going to commit to it here on the air, I would recommend that the minimum needs to be 20 cents a word. That is not what most people are receiving. Publishers are still frequently asking translators to do this work for free, Hmm. um, which is just beyond disrespectful. Um, And then, you know, in addition to that, authors receive royalties somewhere between 10 and 15 percent. Very, very frequently translators don't get that. Very, very frequently translators don't have agents to fight for them in negotiations. So it can be hard to get that. Also, you may be taking that one percent away from your author for whom you are also an advocate. You want the best for them. So that can be awkward and tense. Um, so there are a lot of different kind of nuances to how much a translator should get paid, but it, it really needs to be 20 cents a word with ideally a two or three percent
4: royalty. Well, this is Naraitz. Literary translation is a wonderful art. Those who produce great translations of Thomas Mann, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and Proust are famous, but those who translate non-European languages are not. I have done Farsi to English translation and submitted my work for publication to online magazines for no pay because I want more people to know the literature of Iranians. I also can tell you that ChatGPT and Google Translate are totally inadequate for this task and unreliable. So Jay, I'd love to get your thoughts about diversity in the industry. This is also something that's been raised quite a bit. And I'm wondering if you could just give us a sense of what that's like, because it feels like if this is an industry that relies on people to translate languages, the more people that you have with this knowledge uh, being part of uh, the profession, the more work we would get exposed to. (laughs)
3: Right. Um, Well, one of my many origin stories uh, as a translator is that I took a Korean, contemporary Korean literature class while I was an undergrad in California, actually. And um, my contemporary Korean literature starts with Korean independence from Japanese colonialism in 1945, when the ban on the Korean language was finally lifted. So, My introduction to Korean literature was overtly political, and looking back, I'm kind of amazed that I was so, I I was just led by a a great professor who really understood the politics of translation as well, you know, who brings Mm. these texts um, abroad, and I think um, because of the history of the Korean Peninsula, a lot of the... Actually, all of the uh, first generation uh, Korean to English translators were white people, white translators who had come to Korea um, during the war or after the war as Peace Corps uh, members or even missionaries. And so, of course, those translators had a certain agenda in mind. And I'm not saying that, you know, like those people are not allowed to translate. Oftentimes, I think discussions around diversity get very touchy because it's like who is allowed to translate, who is not allowed to translate. I'm not at all even suggesting um, a certain um, prerequisite. I'm just saying I think we need to look at the history of who is allowed into this industry, into this field, and gets the benefit um, from being quote-unquote the you know, the gatekeepers or the bridge to this new culture. So I feel that I am part of the second, or uh, I I think I'm between the second and third generation of literary translators. And um, uh, many of us are immigrants and I think we are bringing something new.
4: Thank you. Yeah, We're talking with a panel of literary translators more after the break. This is Forum, I'm Mina Kim.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera,
4: This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour with a panel of literary translators about why translators are pushing for more recognition, pay, and diversity in the field, also the beauty and the challenges of being a literary translator. Sojay translates from Korean as a poet, a creator of the Zine Chogwa, which represents multiple translations of the same poem in each issue. Jenny Croft translates from Polish, Argentine Spanish, and Ukrainian, author of the forthcoming novel. The Extinction of Irina Ray, and the memoir Homesick, originally published in Spanish as Serpientes y Escaladas, Escaleras, and a translator for Polish Nobel laureate Olga Tokarczuk. Bruna Dantas Lobato, translates from Portuguese, is a novelist, an advocate, for tra- an advocate for translators. She's just been long listed for the National Book Award and is author of the forthcoming novel Blue Light Hours. You, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your questions and comments about the Art of Literary Translation, you can email them to forum at kqed.org. You can find us on our social channels, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord, at KQED forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786. Let me go to Carolyn in Pleasant Hill. Carolyn, you're on.
7: Hi, thank you so much for having this really thorough and nuanced conversation about the topic. Um, I kind of fell into translating from the German in the mid-1980s, and I wonder if... Your panel has experienced what I have, which is increased competition, people with multiple language degrees and it, how they've dealt with it, whether they work with particular authors or publishing houses um, in order to really be able to make a living.
4: Mm. Carolyn, thanks. And anyone have uh, a reaction to what Carolyn is describing or have faced similar things and have a way of getting um, working with that reality. I would I would
5: say that um I mean two things. So one is that I do have these ongoing relationships with writers. This is if you're translating contemporary literature. Um and so then you know if they get another book published, it's probably through you in the first place. And if not, they're gonna request you. Um but also there's there are just so many, they're also new writers, they're new translators, which is great, which is what we want. And there are more and more writers. So it, there shouldn't be a lack of possible projects.
4: You know, Bruna, when we've talked about projects who they're extended to diversity in the translation world, you have raised the issue of a lack of diversity or a lack of heritage speakers being used in translation. Can you talk about what that means and why you think that's the case? Yeah,
6: it's definitely related to Caroline's question too, That and also Soja's comment about who originally was doing this translation work. It's, you know, standard that maybe someone who learned a Mandarin at Harvard would be more valued for their work than someone who's spoken Mandarin their whole life at home. So I would like to see a shift in that, that There are so many different ways of gaining knowledge. And now I know that my experiences with my mom and my experiences in the world, those things are knowledge, too. And they're in my novels. They're all over my translations. It's, you know, as valuable, I would arguably say more valuable than maybe sitting in a classroom and reading about a place that is treated on the page as an author. I am more interested in a relationship with my languages and the countries and the authors that feels more equal and that feels like a conversation as opposed to me sitting from my home and trying to bridge, you know, something complete of my, the distance between myself and something completely foreign. Um, So for heritage speakers now, uh, increasingly we're seeing more opportunities and more ways to support people who want to translate and maybe feel like they can't because they're not part of the academy, their fellowships and events, readings, all of that. Um, I encourage everyone listening who feels like they can't do it to just give it a try.
4: Well, listener Ilze writes Could the guest talk about the scouting that literary translators do as they choose works to translate? So, so Bruno, what kind of power do translators hold in terms of determining? what English speakers are exposed to.
6: We hold some power uh, in the sense that we can present projects to the powers that be, to the gatekeepers, and advocate for those projects as well as we can and hope they will listen to us. It has worked in the past for me a few times, but I can also say that it doesn't always work. There is this wonderful novel I translated it won all the major prizes in Brazil. It's called The Dark Side of Skin by Jefferson Tenorio. And it's about police brutality in Brazil and racism. I mean, a emotional, searing portrait of this man murdered by a cop. Gorgeous book, really. And I had such a hard time finding a publisher for it because all the publishers said, is this the book about race in Brazil? Now, that seems to mm. me and undue pressure on this book to be the ultimate definitive story of race because they're only going to publish one book, right? So it has to be double. Uh instead, I would like to give these books the same kind of space in grace that we give American authors. There can be multiple stories. It can be multiple ways of looking at this. And that book absolutely deserves its space. And I'm I'm glad that eventually a publisher did pick it up. It will come out with charcoal press out of the UK
4: you know, jenny i'd love for you to also weigh in on that question from the listener just with regard to the power that translators can hold um in terms of determining what we interact with as english speakers or even in the u.s what do you think
5: yeah i mean i can only echo what what bruna has mm. already said i um you know it's just not possible for The best intentioned editor to speak every language in the world or be in all places at once so um, good editors really do rely on translators to act as scouts meaning to discover exciting talent um, to use a weird word that is frequently used in the publishing industry (laughs) um, and bring it to them so bring their attention to great books and explain why they're great you know usually translators into english because Literary translation is such a small percentage of books that are published every year. Um, translators into English are usually not sought out by the publisher. They're usually presenting, you know, like a 20-page sample of the book that they've done for free and a report of a couple of pages. Um, this is for fiction or for a book of nonfiction. Um, so, yeah, that's part of their responsibility.
4: Mm. Let me go to caller Elaine next in San Francisco. Elaine, you're on. Yes. Hi. Um, I wanted to ask
7: a question. When you're printing text for a song um, in English for a recital program, how important is it to include the punctuation
4: at the end of a sentence? Hmm. Um, So, Jay, do you want to take that? Actually, I'm also thinking about how you are translating plays and dialogue and things like that.
3: I think as for the punctuation question, it might depend on the language, um, the two languages. Uh, what languages is the caller? Um, Do you have a
7: language in mind, Elaine? Okay. Well, no. So that's what I'm saying. So I am doing a song in English from a Broadway musical. The song was cut from the, from the original musical, so there's no libretto to you know, use for reference. And so when I was printing, it, uh, printing the text for the program, I'm thinking in phrases of how it's sung. Right. So, so one line might just be three words with a period, but then there might be a sentence that has like eight words. Well, looking at the program, it's not going to look nice if you have like a really, really long sentence. And so I'm thinking of printing it in, you know, phrases as how how it's sung musically. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to know, like, how important is it to format it that way? And then also, do you have to have the, the periods at the end of each sentence when you're printing something in English?
4: Anything you'd add hearing that, Sojay?
3: I think it's up to you, Elaine. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, uh, you know, the creative liberty. I think punctuation is one of those many things that translators grapple with and, you um, It's a very case by case scenario, it sounds like, you know, um, not all poems have punctuation. So maybe your uh, recital program doesn't need to have punctuation or it can, depending on what you want.
4: We've got a couple of comments here about bad translation. Raza from San Carlos writes in a comment, Translations from Urdu to English have historically destroyed the work, especially in poetry. For example, it's a beautiful thing to walk on morning dew because the day is so hot, whereas translated into English, it can give the impression that the day is cloudy and miserable. Another listener writes, In the book A Game of Thrones, there's a scene in which the characters find a dead direwolf that was impaled by the antlers of a stag. Apparently, the Italian translator thought this did not make sense and changed the stag to a unicorn. This, of course, removed all the symbolism that was in the scene in addition to not being what the author wrote. So, Soji, going back to you, what what makes a bad translation? Like, what is something that weighs on you or that you fear even in terms of translation?
3: <laughs> wow. Uh, I feel like I'm getting all the hard questions. <laughs> you <laughs> I'm can just gonna if you want. Um, <laughs> I wanted I- yeah. Yeah, I also want to add that I'm probably the least diplomatic of the three translators <laughs> represented here. So um, I I would say a bad translation, hmm. Okay, th- there are two <laughs> questions that I ask myself. Um, did I try to do too much? You know what I mean? Am I being, like, am I being extra? <laughs> let's mm. say you know in vernacular terms um am I being selfish and trying to articulate like a personal thing that I want out of the poem or the other question I ask myself is what am I so scared of you know am mm. I am I scared of changing say the punctuation or the line breaks because the Korean syntax is ordered in a certain way and so I think I'm always asking myself, hey, are you trying hard enough? And hey, you know, are you doing too much? You know, like that kind of um, balancing act. And hopefully that answers the question about what makes a bad translation. I think
4: that's that's very interesting to hear. Um, well, in terms of hard questions, here's another one from a listener on Discord <laughs> who writes... Um, I'm interested in works that seem to completely stymie translators and remain unavailable after decades of attempts. I think of works like, okay, I am apologize in advance for if I accidentally mispronounce things, but I think of works like Rosa's Grande Certao Veredas, Bedeviled in the Badlands, which is acknowledged to be a world classic but has defied attempts at a good translation. Also, yun Yun or Yun-Ren Chao's Lion-Eating Poet in a Stone Den, discarded as a nonsense work in translation or a child's exercise, but is actually a very important piece of poetry. If translated correctly, let me remind listeners you're listening to Forum, and let me send that one to Bruna. Bruna, is there a work that has just completely stymied you? It (laughs) Um,
6: has not. Nothing quite done that to me but I love this question I am familiar with Rosa's Grande Sertão Veredas and I have opinions about that one so this is good Um, in the same way that you know if you're translating James Joyce's Ulysses or if you're translating Shakespeare like I have read Shakespeare in translation growing up uh, and it's made me want to be a translator it was beautiful I think it might Nabokov for example is notorious for Mm. uh, wanting to capture every single layer of meaning and add so many footnotes to it again, you know, and trying to make everything so comprehensive and all-encompassing, even though I don't think I am as comprehensive a reader as Nabokov. So I wouldn't need half the amount of footnotes, you know. So it seems to me that there are some translators who might be very preoccupied with capturing um, breadth and depth in all of it, maybe they're being extra, maybe they're doing too much, but that's their prerogative. Whereas I'm more preoccupied with capturing a reading experience. In Grande Sertão Veredas, there's a lot of regional language and a lot of language play. That seems to me that it would be what I would prioritize. Some translators have been wildly successful with that book in particular. Alison Intrigan has been working on it for nearly 10 years, and it will come out soon. And I have no doubt it will be a phenomenal translation. It just seems to me that sometimes instead of choosing a reading and going with it and having a vision, the vision I I keep talking about, you know, uh, people forget that this is a piece of literature, not some kind of religious text that can't be touched or that can't be played with. That was never its intent in the first place.
4: Well, let me go to caller Dorothea in Berkeley. Dorothea, join us.
2: Hi. um, Yeah, in in reference to some of the things your speakers are talking about, if you have the name of the uh, translator on the cover, someone like myself will go, oh, that's going to be a good translation. I've read something else that, you know. So I think that's very valuable. And Mm -hmm. also I wanted to point out, uh, again, in just what someone just said, one of your speakers just said, um, when you read translations in Hebrew, you often don't get, you cannot get, the references to Torah, the Jewish Bible, that the author is making by using certain words and phrases. And that is a huge obstacle, because it takes away a lot of the depth that you would get from the book if you knew the origin of, of the phrase in the Torah and, and what the story is around that phrase. So that adds some, such a magnitude of depth that we Americans miss when we read Hebrew in translation. But there are very good translators. And in that sense, if I know that translator, I will read that book more readily. Yeah. So I just wanted to bring Thank that you, up to you. Yes. another level of challenge. I okay. appreciate, that. Very,
4: much. appreciate that very much. We're coming up on the end of the hour and I would just love to hear from all three of you just about the role translation has played in your lives, why you love it. Like Jenny, what do you love about it and do you see progress being made towards some of the changes you'd like to see?
5: I think progress is being made. Um, the field has changed a lot since I entered it 20 years ago or so. Um, I I love what I love is the collaborative aspect, whether or not I'm, you know, talking to the author as I'm translating, it's still always um, a project that you're doing with someone else. I also mm-hmm. met my husband through translation. He's a great translator. So nice. that helps.
4: Yeah. <laughs> so, Jay, what about you? Hopefully this is not a hard question. What you love about it, what it's brought to your life.
3: This is my favorite question. Thank you. Um, <laughs> because as a diasporic Korean um, Learning Korean literature was my way back, I thought. Huh. I, I thought it was a door back into um, my experiences in Korea, my relatives, you know, everything, um, my identity. But I found through translation that it was actually a revolving door that led me back into the world, right? So now through translation, I get to meet amazing writers and translators like Bruna and Jenny and get to talk on radio shows like this. So, of course... <laughs> I love translation.
4: (laughs) (laughs) How about you, Bruna, in terms of what you get out of reading across different languages? Writing a translating.
6: In many ways, my story is somewhat similar to Soja's. I felt like my Brazilian side was just repressed, and I kept pushing it out the door. Uh, and it was a way to be my my full self, to bring my American life and my Brazilian past together, and put those two in dialogue. But it's also been a way for me to live a life in uh, with books. And to be reading all the time and to be thinking about the books I read and writing about them, honestly, I couldn't be luckier. Um, It's really a gift.
4: Jenny, one piece of advice for someone who is thinking about this after they're inspired about hearing all three of your experiences going into this field, what would you say? Definitely do it. Yeah, worth it. The more people that are in it, the more I think ideas and and uh, interpretations and experiences that we all will get exposed to. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you today. Jenny Croft translates from Polish, Argentine, Spanish, and Ukrainian, uh, author of the forthcoming novel, The Extinction of Irina Rey* and the memoir Homesick, originally published in Spanish as Serpientes y Escaleras, a translator for Polish Nobel laureate Olga Tokarczuk. Runa Dantas Lobato, author of the forthcoming novel Blue Light Hours, translates from Portuguese, an advocate for translators who's been long listed for the National Book Award. Soje, creator of the zine Chogwa, which presents multiple translators of the same poem in each issue and translates from Korean, is a poet themselves. My thanks to Caroline Smith for producing today's segment. My thanks to our listeners for sharing their questions, comments, and insights. As always, you have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.